Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that I am looking for 50 people with Hashimoto's. If you have been diagnosed in the last 10 years and you feel lost or confused about exactly what to do, then I want to invite you to join me for a free training call on Thursday, May 16th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where I will show you how to support your thyroid for your thyroid type and your specific Hashimoto's triggers. You will also find out how to lower your thyroid antibodies and how to get to the bottom of all of your thyroid symptoms, the weight gain, the fatigue, the brain fog, the inflammation, the hair loss. Please go to inatoppler.com slash Zoom call to register, and I will send you all of the call details. I only have room for 50 people, so please be sure that you register at inatoppler.com slash Zoom call and get your spot right now. Meet Emily. She has two autoimmune diseases, and after learning about the connection between autoimmunity and EBV, Epstein-Barr virus, she decided to get tested. She asked her primary doctor, but got a lot of pushback. But she persisted, and after several attempts, her doctor finally agreed and tested her for all of the markers that we recommend. She was excited when the results came back, but her doctor didn't know how to interpret or explain them and just said, everyone's been exposed and not to worry. But Emily knew there's more to this from listening to the show and wanted to better understand her results, but she was puzzled about how to interpret them and wasn't sure if the virus is actually posing a risk to her health. That's when she contacted my office for help in the interpretation. I completely understood where she was coming from, and I thought, if she was confused, likely others may be as well. So today, we're going to go in-depth into what each of the markers mean and how you can better understand and interpret your results. Every year... Thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. EBV is such an important topic, and I want this information to help you and not to create more confusion. So to help demystify it, I thought, who better to talk about this than Dr. Kasha Kynes? I actually had Dr. Kasha on last year when we discussed a case of fatigue, which turned out to be an EBV reactivation. And I knew that she was the perfect person to bring back for this. Now, for those that don't know Dr. Kasha, she's a doctor of clinical nutrition, and the CEO of EBV Educational Institute and Holistic Nutrition Naturally. And she's the author of the Amazon's bestseller, The Epstein-Barr Virus Solution. Dr. Kasha, I am so excited to have you back. Welcome. Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me back. It's been a year. I can't believe it. I know. Time really flies. So EBV has so many different implications and therefore properly evaluating it is so important. Just so that we are on the same page, can you go over the four markers that are necessary to test so that we can really get a full picture and see what's going on? So the first marker that you want to test and the most important one is early antigen and it's called EAIgg. And that's the marker that sometimes doctors miss. And that's this really single most important one. If you don't, if you miss this one, you won't know your status. Then there's EBNA, N as in Nancy, and A as an apple. EBNA, IgG, that's another one. Then VCA, IgG, and then VCA, IgM. So these are the four. Okay, great. And by the way, for everyone listening, I'm going to have this all in the chart in the show notes so that you guys can see all this information. So let's talk a little bit about each one. So you mentioned the early antigen, and I also agree with you. I think that so many doctors miss that one. People will do one or two or maybe three of them, but that one isn't always tested. So can you give us a little bit more information about that one, what it means and why it's so important? So just let's zoom out a little bit so um, the, the audience uh, can get a bigger picture because it's, it's always confusing when you talk about any labs. When you have 
infection of EBV, the virus stays in the body. And uh, we don't necessarily uh, have the capacity to kill it off completely and get rid of it completely out of the system because, you know, you don't live in a bubble. You may get it somewhere else in future. And 90, 95% of global population carry the, carries this virus. So, so just so that you don't expect to kill it off, you get rid of it, uh, it's black and white, and you're fine. You can be perfectly fine and healthy and have some of the antibodies, especially two of these for showing as positive and have a perfect life and perfect health. Okay, so we're, we'll talk about that later. But zooming in and out, there is a period of time when you can feel like this proverbial uh, track hit you over, like you've been hit over the head and you are feeling crappy. So this is when you want to test your virus. This is when, even though you feel awful, this is when you want to do the blood test <laughs> because that will, especially that early antigen, the very first one, the most important one, early antigen is really the main antibody that shows up during the flare-up. We call it reactivation. And what it means is most of the time the virus is dormant kind of floating there inside your infected cells and it's doing some stuff uh, more or less depending on the health status in the worst periods when you when you feel the worst when you reactivate it means that the cells that have ebv in them they start manufacturing new viruses using the cell's dna and so all these young viruses are ready to bud out of those cells and those cells burst, we call it lysing. And so this is a lysing, a lytic uh, phase when the, the cells burst and the new young viruses that were just manufactured spill into your bloodstream. And then they're gonna travel everywhere and they're gonna go into your thyroid and maybe cause Hashimoto's and go to your liver or spleen, uh, connective tissue, brain, wherever. But the, the early antigen is the antibody that will pick that up. And this is really the most important one that will tell your doctor and you, okay, you actually have this dangerous situation when your virus is active. It is not a good place to be in and you have to do something about it. The doctors, and this is when people will feel like they have a mono, you know, mononucleosis. This is what doctors recognize. This is when you really, really have this worst flu ever in your life when you can't pick up. But uh, the doctor will tell you to wait it out and go and rest. It's very important to go and rest, but waiting it out is not good enough uh, because it can go chronic in some people. So if you feel terrible, you know, this is when you have to knock on the door to your doctor. There are direct-to-consumer labs when you can bypass the doctor if, if you don't have one or if they don't want to test. Sometimes they just don't want to test because they think, Everybody has antibodies and it's useless. It's wasting time and your money. And so there are direct-to-consumer labs and you can just get it done. You don't want to wait a few weeks with early antigen because it will show only for a few short weeks. Uh, let me give you an example. One of my students, clinician, was saying, I have a perfect scenario. I know it's EBV. I know it's chronic EBV. But she did the testing and early antigen is normal. What do we do with this, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was asking her, okay, so when did she test? January. When did she feel the worst? Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. By the time January came, that early antigen, you know, the lysing happened, the burst happened, the new viruses are in spilling into the bloodstream. They're not going to stay in the bloodstream. They're going to travel into the organs. And so... So the infection moved from acute, you know, mono, acute lysing into a chronic form. So she just had a flare-up and the test missed that flare-up component. So other, un other, um, other antibodies were elevated, but these are the more chronic elevated antibodies. So a doctor would, would say, you know, you don't have EBV, you had it in the past. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. So basically, if early antigen is elevated, it's activated right now, things are lysing, you need to make sure that you get on top of that. This is bad news. Yes. Yeah. Now, here's another question. What if early antigen is elevated and someone may be feeling sick, but they may not feel like, oh my gosh, I'm dying, can't get out of bed sick? What if it just feels like a cold or they just feel a little bit run down? Could that still sort of coincide together? Yeah, it could. So for different people, the symptoms of reactivation or flare-up may be different. For some people, it's the gut. For some people, it's the lymph nodes in the neck. For some people, it's the throat, a terrible headaches, uh, or terrible fatigue. For most people, it's terrible fatigue or very bad flu. So it really varies. So if you have early antigen elevated, definitely you definitely have reactivation, whether it's causing the little hiccup or it's causing something else, you want to dig a little deeper into any symptoms that you have that you didn't have a week or two weeks ago or that are worsening. Mm -hmm. It could be skin rashes. It couldn't be terrible fatigue. And it may not be um, a little cold symptom. You know, it just depends. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you're saying that. I also like that you said that it could be gut related because so many people don't realize that they think, okay, well, it must be, you know, sore throat and lymph nodes. Um, So talk a little bit about if it's more in the gut, what are some of the symptoms that people can experience this way? You know, they don't miss it if they may have that. It could be pain. It could be an ability to digest things. It could be, it depends what the virus does, because sometimes the virus can affect the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve innervates your gut. And what could that mean? That could mean that you're constipated, things are not moving, so you're in pain. It really depends. Uh, You may also have leaky gut from other sources, but the leakiness could potentially be caused by the virus if it's bad enough. So there's a the, the EBV, unfortunately, has a, is, is a big bucket of all kinds of symptoms that you can throw into it. And that's the, that's the biggest hiccup where people get confused. That's why early antigen is so important. Because if it's positive, then you know that that's, that may be the driving force. It's driving something. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Makes total sense. Okay. So let's talk about the EBNA. What does that stand for? And what does that mean? EBNA is... A, nuclear antibody and uh, that's a long-term status of the virus so this is there's two antibodies once you had an infection they become elevated and they stay elevated and so you may have a good health and you may be thriving and these two can still show that they are positive and that's ebna and vca igg both igg the thing is that it really depends how high they are and it depends what your quality of life is. And during a flare-up, when your early antigen will be elevated, these two can also increase a little bit. So it's great to have tracking of your past uh, lab results. It's great to start taking the test once in a while if you're chronically ill, you know, if you have mystery conditions, autoimmune disorders and stuff like that and not really getting better. It's good to periodically do uh, EBV testing, especially, like I said, when you really feel worse, and then maybe after a few months when you feel better, just to see what the body does with those antibodies, just just to see the trajectory. Because you may notice that during a flare-up, during reactivation, your EBNA uh, was 350, but then between those reactivations, it drops to 200 or maybe 180 and kind of stabilizes there and you feel fine. So it depends on the person, depends on the history and depends on the medical conditions you have that are not responding. <laughs> because it could be Hashimoto's, like you're an expert on that. And Hashimoto's, if it's driven by EBV, it doesn't matter what you do, the Hashimoto's will not budge. But if you work on EBV and suddenly your antibodies to Hashimoto's normalized and you know it was driven by EBV. So it just depends on the history. Um, So if you look at medical literature, EBNA and VCA, IgG, the trajectory may may change over, over the time if you keep testing, but they don't necessarily go to zero and I don't want people to be demoralized just seeing that, oh, it's still triple digits, or oh, it's still, you know, 98. Uh, if it's stable over years and doesn't budge, but you feel great, that's not a problem. If it's 
elevated initially, and then you do take steps and uh, you're on anti-EBV protocol, you have a good lifestyle, you rest, uh, you manage stress, and they go down a little bit. They're still positive, but the trajectory is downwards. That's what you want to see. That's what you want to celebrate. So I don't like people to really uh, get demoralized by not seeing zero because it's probably not going to happen over the lifetime. Yeah, because it does show this past infection. So the EBNA and the VCA IgG are both markers of past infection. And then what about VCA IgM? I think that a lot of people are familiar with the difference between IgG and IgM and you know IgM being more active versus past, but talk a little bit more about that one. Uh, one more thing about EBNA and VCA IgG. If you know that yours is, let's say, around 250 typically, and you see it repeatedly in your labs, but suddenly it's 500, and maybe your early antigen didn't pick up, the EBNA and VCA, they may be a little delayed showing increase, but it may, some people may not make antibodies to certain, uh, certain markers may not show up. So just be aware that if EBA, EBNA and VCA in, are increasing in the labs, pay attention and notice if uh, maybe one, two, three weeks before that test was done, if you felt that you were getting sick, because that may be an indication that there's a little bit of reactivation as well. Okay, that trajectory increases, just pay attention. What did I do? Did I travel too much? Did I sleep too little? Because the, the virus can reactivate a little bit or can be a full flare-up. It can be a degree. And so maybe not enough to show early antigen, but maybe just enough to show EB, EBNA um, and VCA to, to increase. Okay, so does that make sense? Yes. Moving forward. So IgM typically is... A, Think about M as immediate or current or first infection. Uh, so in the immunology, they like to say that IgM markers indicate current or first initial infection. Yes and no, with VCA, IgG, IgM, it should only flare up with the very first EBV infection. That's how theoretically it should be. And so what we see in chronic infections, you can have elevated early antigen and the other markers, but VCA IgM is expected to be normal. So this is the one that will most, in most cases, it's negative. Okay. I am so glad that you're mentioning this because I think this is what creates so much confusion because so many people have this understanding if they've researched and they've, you know, listened to things and they learn about health and they kind of know, they've learned that IgG's past, IgM is current. And so whenever they see a negative IgM, they think, okay, not current, it's past. And I think most doctors look at it that way too. They think, no, nope, M is negative, so yes. you are fine. And I think where people get into trouble is either if they don't test that early antigen or they do test it, right? But then they don't interpret it properly and they say, well, okay, early antigen's positive, but IgM is negative, so it must not be current, but right, it is. Right, right, right. And it's very, very interesting because, you know, you look at literature and it's not black and white. And then you look at clinical uh, experience and, and people are all over the map. There's odd things that happen. So for example, I had a couple of cases, just a couple of people that I know of, every time they tested their VCA IgM was elevated. Every single time, it's, it's not supposed to happen. But if you look at, if you look at, um, there's a fabulous graph color-coded graph and that's 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 actually extremely helpful so if anyone listening today is confused in any way by anything that we're discussing i would just send them to my website ebv help h-e-l-p and go to the lab uh, web page because i i uh, put the screenshot of that image it's a color-coded graph that is perfectly like visually explaining everything that we're saying and if you look at that graph, during reactivation, VCA IgM uh, has a little, little, uh, like a little bud. It doesn't elevate very much. So I think it's just with reactivation in the 99% of the population, probably, it's not enough to show positive in the lab. However, 
there is a little bug. There is something. So in some people, there's enough modulation to show it positive. And so that explains why I there's a rare cases when people complain every time I test a VCA IgM is positive. How am I supposed to understand it? So technically, it's it flags up during the first stage of the very initial infection, and then that's it. But I love that graph because it's a reminder that there's just a little bit, a little bit. And in most people, it's not enough to show positive, but in some cases, it may be. So people may get confused because they will say, okay, if it's elevated, my VCA IgM is elevated. So does it mean it's my first infection? Theoretically, yes. But then they say, well, I had mono <laughs> before. So that doesn't make sense. You, you shouldn't be confused about it because it's just this gray area. Yeah, and I have someone like that as well who has been dealing with EBV for probably close to a year. The IgM has been positive. It's been slowly going down over the last year, but still positive even after a lot of the antiviral support. So this is one of those cases, like you're saying, where it does elevate, but because it's on its way down, it is showing that it's coming down and it might just take a long time for it to completely go negative, right? It may, it may take a long time, but also, you know, there, the virus is very predictable and there are certain things it cannot stand. And so we have a protocol that really handles that. And so the protocol is predictable. So if you're saying that the person is doing everything, antivirals and so on and so forth, and it's, it's slow, then it means that other things are actually in the way. And one of the biggest culprits would be their heavy metals or molds. Toxic mold is really, really going to affect uh, the body's capacity to, uh, to work on EBV. So I would say that's, for me, that would be a red flag. That it's taking a year and it's still kind of, uh, no, no, that's not good enough. Right, right. Can you tell us a little bit about why mold makes it such a big issue for the body to deal with EBV, even with antivirals? Uh, Mold is devastating to the immune cells, the immune system, the immune signaling. I mean, I have have a patient who (laughs) finally we have pinpointed recurrent molds, in the household and it would be cleaned and then another source of molds. And, and so very odd things start to happen. Like finally she stopped losing her hair. She stopped having urinary tract infection constantly. She stopped having problems with sleep. And that's, and that did not happen with the whole protocol that we're, we're doing uh, for EBV. Uh, but it did happen when we started to address the molds and <clears throat> we're still working on it. So that's, the mold is really toxic because, you know, you can have the virus in the system, but you don't inhale it. Whereas if you have mold exposure, constantly inhale it. You saturate your body with the, the pores. And so there's no escape. It's really the body is insulted and it takes a toll. It really does. And mold just has such an effect on the mitochondria. I mean, it literally poisons the mitochondria. So, you know, it really has such an effect on the overall body. And for everyone listening, we actually did a detailed episode on mold with Evan Brand. That was episode number five. So if you miss that, you can go back and learn much more about how mold can affect us and how you can find it, how you could test for it. I think a lot of it also has to do with the mycotoxins. Sometimes people may taste their home and they may not see anything, but molds can be past exposure, just like EBV can be past exposure. And you could still have these mycotoxins, which are the mold toxins in your body, even if you're not being exposed to mold at this moment. So it's really important to look at that. What about if we have a negative early antigen and the IgM is negative, but we have a very high VCA IgG. And I know you touched on this a little bit, but I want to just kind of go into a little more detail with it. So, you know, folks like say Anthony William, you know, he says how the virus stays in your body. And once you have it, it's in there and it can really get into the cells and really cause a lot of damage. So if someone's IgG is very, very high, I mean, I've seen levels like above 750, let's say, even though everything else is negative, does that mean that we need to do something about it? And how would that work? Yes, and this is a very important point. First of all, if people have done testing and they have their uh, history with that, 
and they have seen the the results that say more than 600 or more than 750 or whatever the lab maximum is past which they don't even give you the number i want to address this right away because that's another way another place where people get really depressed and kind of deflated uh, so let's say that your trajectory with your health is improving and you're getting better, the sleep quality is better, the rest is better, fatigue is shifting, you're getting better, okay? But every time you're testing, you still have more than 600, still have more than 600, right? And then you look at the lab and you says, you know, it doesn't matter what I do, I still have more than 600. So I want the listeners to understand that you may have had 3,000. You may have had 5,000. Maybe it's much closer to 600 right now. So you should never, never feel bad. The proof is in the pudding. Your quality of life is better. You're not getting infected. You're not achy. You're functioning better. You can exercise. You can walk. You know, all these things matter. You don't have hives anymore. You don't have headaches anymore. Whatever it is, maybe your Hashimoto antibodies are dropping and are normalizing whatever good things in your health are happening because of the effort you put into it if your labs like especially EB, ebna and vca both of them if the, the lab still says more than just keep going until it goes maybe 5.99 <laughs> because you you know just keep in mind that it may have been into a few thousands Right, right. That's a very good point. Yeah, of course, because it's not quantified uh, above that number. But here's another question on that topic. So let's just say someone does have Hashimoto's and, you know, they're working on not necessarily antiviral things, but they're working on supporting their lifestyle and stress management and taking nutrients for their thyroid. And they're addressing some of their triggers, like potentially, you know, heavy metals or molds or certain GI microbes. And they are feeling better, but they haven't really done anything specifically for antiviral because their early antigen and their IgM has always been negative. But if that person has this really high BCA IgG or the BNA, would it be helpful for them to do something with an antiviral capacity to it to help that along? Or is that something that wouldn't be helpful? I would, I would totally do it. I would totally do it. So, you know, you, you want to look at the history and you want to see if there are times in the past medical history when they may have had different presentations of infections maybe juvenile um, rheumatoid arthritis, or maybe, you know, maybe they have celiac. There's, there's all kinds of autoimmune conditions that may be triggered by EBD. What I love is how predictable the virus is. If we don't have heavy metals, if we don't have Wi-Fi interference, and if you don't have the mycotoxin interference, if it's just EBD, you can literally get on a very targeted protocol for three weeks it's a great test because um, by the end of three weeks, you should definitely see some things dropping off, whether it's symptoms, whether it's antibodies to, let's say, you know, Hashimoto's, although that may take a little longer, but symptomatically, you should feel the difference. And then the labs will follow as you continue. So that's a good indication that um, that the, the virus is driving a lot of the issues. Good point. Now, what about people who try the antiviral protocol? So things that you and I have talked about in the past, like lysine and acetylcysteine and extra zinc and selenium, licorice and things like that. What if they start that and they actually feel worse? If, let's say, maybe they weren't feeling that bad, but when they take it, they're getting achy and you know they may feel like their lymph nodes feel more tender and swollen and they may even have almost like flu-like symptoms but they're not actually sick is that a detoxification reaction from the virus it depends what the protocol is so my my philosophy as a you know i've been i've been in the clinical practice for a long time now is that we want to avoid the flu-like symptoms. We want to avoid die-off. We want to avoid the healing crisis. It's never worth it because it just means that you're doing things too fast. With the protocol that I start with, that, like you mentioned, it is based in amino acids and single nutrients. So it's very simple. So there's there's different groups of people. Some people over over-metabolize supplements and they know it. They have to start with half a capsule. 
you know, they, they're very cautious. They're not going to jump into all of them because they know they over metabolize. But most people don't. They can jump on an aggressive uh, dose of each and be per perfectly fine. There's also people that may have methylation problems when too much methylation support can backfire. They have methyl trapping. So too much NAC and too much selenium, they can feel worse. But that's not going to be a healing crisis, and it's not in in this protocol. This protocol doesn't doesn't create the environment for the die-off. Uh, the die-off will be where you use more aggressive things that actually kill the virus, and because that creates the dead debris, which is also very toxic, and you have to remove it. And that's more like uh, loracidin or monolaurin or olive leaf extract. These actually these actually kill the cells of the virus and what we do with selenium or licorice or nac or, or lysine we're actually immobilizing the virus we're preventing it from replication we're stalling it we're suspending it so what for on this protocol people just start feeling better because the the oxidative stress the damage that uh, that is created by constant activity of the virus is just stalled that's the beauty of it. That's very safe. And and a lot of people that have chronic EBV, they are so malnourished for many reasons. And so they they do so well on some NAC. It's so needed. Selenium is so depleted from the soil. Women don't get enough selenium. And so it's like we're we're providing an aggressive um, dose of selenium and that feeds into the thyroid function, into the detoxification, liver support. I mean, there's just they are superstars because they're just single nutrient, very well studied, and they're multitask. And it's just a win-win. So I don't see people flaring up um, with that. And if anybody does this protocol and feel that, like they are uh, experiencing die-off, I would just back off. Cut it in half. Cut it in one-third. Start with one capsule of each whatever you have to do to stay without the symptoms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I have to say, I love that protocol. I use it a lot, you know, ever since you and I initially chatted last oh, year. Do? I do. I do. Oh. And I've myself, I've used it. I've used it with a lot of people with great results. And I did have one person that reacted even uh, without using monolaurin or lomatium or some of the other ones. And so it's exactly what we did. We cut it in a quarter. Actually, we stopped it for about a week or two and then restarted at half dose. Um, and it was better. And it was better. And and also, you know, the because they're not combination supplements, just one at a time, you can literally start reintroducing one at a time for a few days, increasing the dose to see which of those supplements actually was hurting you. Because in, in that case, it could have been NAC for some people it's too much, or it could have been just selenium. It could have been the quality or some other ingredients or maybe uh, gluten contamination, who knows, right? So if you have a one individual ingredient in one supplement, it's much easier to pinpoint which one you want to take out or, de or decrease. Absolutely. I am so you are using the protocols and they're working. I'm oh my gosh. My oh, That's yes. Fun. I've been using it for over a year with really, really great results. So thank you for all of that. And oh my gosh. You know, I think also everyone that's been listening to me, partly what inspired this episode is all of the emails that I got and the requests that I got to really explain some of this more because people were starting to test and, you know, they were getting their doctor to run it. And now what? Right, exactly. And then, then, you know, sometimes they'll even run their own labs, but then it's the interpretation, you know, I think without having someone to support you, it could be a little bit confusing. So I think this is so helpful just to go through that. Now, when we think about those four labs, is there anything else that we didn't mention or talk about yet that is important for people to know when they're looking at that interpretation? Yes, great question. Two things that I would I, I would say. Number one, some people don't make enough immunoglobulins. Mm -hmm. And that's when your body is really taxed, when you have a lot of autoimmune issues, maybe you're underweight, there's just, there's not enough to be made for many reasons. So if you suspect, like maybe you, you read Anthony... Uh, Williams books and it's like oh that's me that's my story I can see all these you know permutations and I, I must have EBV and yet you test and everything is negative I would go right away back to your doctor and say please test my total uh, immunoglobulins for IgM and IgG 
and also IgA if you're at it, mm-hmm. and maybe IgE if you are just all of them. Because if let's say if the range is let's say I'm just gonna fake it, let's say total immunoglobulin IgG maybe the range is 100 to 200, and yours is 50. Okay, so then what you have to do is uh, you have to multiply it. So let's say average should be 150. It's between 1 and 200. So I should figure out if my EBNA is, let's say, 50 now and it's normal, let's say. Right. You need to multiply that by 2 to essentially. Multiply that by 2 or 3 to, to actually say what it would be if I was producing it. Exactly. So sometimes you have to resort to, you know, uh, thinking out of the box so so some people some people may have that problem and so you will be really compromised with your immune system in other areas if you're not making antibodies if your body is not fighting so that's a big one there is one more marker that is very seldom tested and i know dr Vojdani has an outstanding um ebv panel that includes that and i know some labs do I'm trying to find a lab that would do it um, direct to consumer. It's EBA, EBNA IgM. And EBNA IgM is actually current infection, just like early antigen. So, and I remember I had a case that was celiac, Hashimoto's, underweight, uh, terrible reactivity to every food. And also there was a hidden uh, long-term mold exposure, very serious which at that time we didn't know. Um, And so that person was terribly compromised and I was lucky to run that lab with her because all the other four markers were normal, but uh, EBNA, IgM flared up. And so we would totally have missed EBV. Mm, Yeah. And is it something that LabCorp request will run, do you know? You know, uh, one of them, I think... um, I'm trying to find out that word, actually. Um, I have to get back to it and actually investigate more. So I would say work with your doctor and ask and let the doctor find whatever labs they're using. Uh, ask the labs if they have that available. Mm-hmm. And then Dr. Vojdani says, is that through Cyrex or what lab is that panel? Dr. Vojdani yeah. has his own lab, uh, immuno, um, immunoscience labs. That's his lab. Okay. So as a clinician, clinicians can uh, have their accounts and run the lab through him. Great. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Oh, Dr. Kasha, this is so helpful. And I am so excited to share all this information with everyone. So I know that you have a lot of exciting things that have been going on with you over the last year. What have you been working on? I've been watching the community. I've been watching presentations. Um, we've had phenomenal transformations in, um, in the EBV uh, recovery program. It's a 10-week program. We cover everything. And then we have the extras like moles, heavy metals, exactly, Wi-Fi and all that. Um, So we've been running it um, most of the year last year. And so I'm I'm watching. I'm watching the trajectory. I'm watching the red flags. I'm watching what the community is experiencing. And and also my patients one-on-one. And what I'm seeing is, and I want to alert... some of the audience, especially if you have burning forests, and this is what's happening in Australia, that there is a particular toxin called dioxin that is very well studied. It's one of the worst toxins, environmental toxins that there is. It causes a lot of problems, but one of the problems it does cause, we know, is um, reactivation of EBV. And that's a problem if any debris is burning, um, diesel fuel, uh, secondhand smoke or cigarette smoke, if you have fire pit, if you have wood burning fire, just making sure that you're not inhaling that. Even fireworks produce dioxins and that lingers in the air. So when I started to pay attention to the EBV community globally, and social media is great about that, when I started to share that and get feedback, um, people were very empowered knowing, okay, I changed my diet, I'm doing everything right. I got sick. I didn't know why. Now I understand. I, I've been, you know, uh, close to uh, burning fires or I, I see what's going on. So this is ex- especially important because it, may, it makes a world of difference. So in Australia, I don't know where you can write, run for cover, but if you can just priority would be to have a good mask and a very good air filter at, in the household. 
to minimize that and really and really uh, be very strategic and be on the aggressive uh, EBV protocol throughout that period to stall the virus so it doesn't really flare up so badly. That's a big, big issue right now, I think. And if uh, we can help a lot of people by just spreading that message about dioxins and burning forests. That is so, so important. I'm so glad you're mentioning that. And you know, what's so nice with the protocol is that a lot of the things that people would take, you know, things like lysine or selenium or zinc, like you said, they're not killing the virus. They're just stopping it from replicating. So if it kind of tries to come up, you know, those nutrients are there to bring it down. But then also, you know, things like NAC is great for detox. So that's going to be good for the dioxin, you know, in some capacity anyway. For the liver. Exactly. And selenium, the same. Selenium and NAC build, they are building blocks for glutathione, which is very important. This is like the whole detoxification. Exactly. What I'm also seeing, number two, what I'm also seeing, I always believed in it and I put it in the book. I I knew that that's also part of the picture. And I see it a lot now, confirmation from our community uh, that Wi-Fi exposure EMF exposure, smart meter exposure, you know, the the routers, exposure to uh, computer screens, the blue light, it has really detrimental effect on you and the virus becomes more virulent. So people are extremely sensitive when you start paying attention to it and decreasing it. That makes a world of difference as well. Interesting, isn't it? It is. I actually did a whole episode on EMFs. So yeah, it's so interesting. Dr. Katra, what are some tips that you have for people to help minimize their EMF exposure? The biggest one would be to uh, ask your electricity provider if they put a smart meter on your house, depending where you live. You may have legal rights or not, like in Pennsylvania, you cannot, um, to have it removed. Um, and if you have it on the outside of the wall, there are fabrics that can protect from, uh, from the radiation going through the inside uh, wall into the house. So it depends, you know, you don't want to have smart meter on the wall outside on the same wall where you have your bed and you sleep. That's very close, even mm-hmm. though it's on the outside. Yeah. You can also, if, uh, if the smart meter is coming inside, you can box it in a mesh metal box. Uh, inside so it doesn't it doesn't uh, transmit inside so that's very important to know and then routers just box your router in a mesh box as well these are available that may slow down your internet it's working it, it does work it slows down your and internet. do those mesh things actually protect it because they're not going to completely encapsulate it they protect it's fahrenheit right i think in physics they protect from the from the detrimental waves um they still get the signal that needs to get out, but you can also turn uh, turn off the router preset it once online through your internet provider. You would have to figure it out. <clears throat> so maybe every every night at 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. until 7 a.m. it's turned off. So there's different ways to do that. And then just being aware. Yeah, turning it off at night is huge. I'm a big proponent of that. Yeah. Uh, you could wear uh, blue light uh, canceling glasses when you watch TV, computer screens and iPod screens and phone screens. Uh, you can turn off that blue light there. You can just Google it, how to turn it off. And we just updated uh, iPhone with my husband and uh, they had an option to put a blue light blocking uh, surface on top of the phone. It's like, okay, let's do that. So there's, you know, technology is is, uh, tagging along. These are the big ones and being aware of where that exposure is and being aware if you're at the airport, there's a lot of hotspots, there's a lot of Wi-Fi. Being on the plane, the closer to the cockpit you sit, the more Wi-Fi exposure you will have. So Yeah, and the closer to the windows also, the more free radicals you're going to get. A lot of people don't realize that one. So I used to always request the window seat. And after I learned this about 10 years ago, now I always sit in the aisle and it's not really comfortable and it's harder to sleep and people are bumping into you, but I think it's less free radical exposure. So I guess it's safer that way. I didn't know that. So now it's a good tip, but I do sit at the aisle too. So that's good. So this is the second thing. The third, the third thing that I've been watching in the last a year and year and a half since, uh, this is since uh, Dr. Harley did a study fascinating study on i think it was seven seven autoimmune disorders that can be triggered by ebv 
Um, and some are not surprising, but some are. And one of the surprising ones was uh, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Uh, well, maybe not to me, but it, it's a surprise because that's not what uh, people associate with these right. conditions. Just because they don't even think of the gut when they think of EBV. So absolutely. Correct, correct, correct. And I've seen studies consistently showing that possibly 60% of Crohn's and 60% more or less of uh, ulcerative colitis may have been triggered initially by the virus, which is completely blew me away because I had no expectations of finding this in medical yeah. issues. Mm-hmm. But even, even the, the biggest thing that I found in his study was celiac. And so I started to track because I had I had those patients, you know, combination of celiac, Hashimoto, SIBO, you know, it's like, what is that? And apparently, so there is a one particular protein, EBNA2, I think it's called, from the virus. So the virus is inside your cell, right? And it goes into the DNA area of your cell that codes for these autoimmune conditions. And so it can literally... If you have genes for celiac, it can actually turn them on. That's my understanding. So I have people who would say, you know, I normally was fine and and now I can tolerate gluten. It makes me so sick. It's like out of the blue, but they also have the EBV. And so it's tragic, but it's another, like it's another connection. So if, if um, there was a study on celiacs that were refractory and the celiacs that were successful, all of those people were on gluten-free diets. So why did one group not heal? Of course, it's complicated, but they did look at the EBV testing. And the conclusion was that there was a big percentage in the refractory group that actually had active reactivated, reactivated chronic EBV at that time. It was like, I think, 60, 70% in that group and only maybe 14% in the other group. So it was statistically significant. That was before Dr. Harley's uh, study. And then Dr. Harley's study said, well, there is the area in the DNA when the virus can actually tri- trigger, uh, trigger the, the uh, expression of those hidden genes that you may have for, for celiac. So, yeah, so if you have celiac and you're doing everything right, and you have worked with functional doctors and you have looked at molds, you have looked at everything and you find, and you still are not feeling the way you should. And you know, it's not contamination and cross-reactivity. You've done cross-reactivity testing. If you've done all of that and you're not thriving, even though you're gluten-free, then you need to, you need to see where that EBV is if it's messing you up. So I would test baby. Yeah, that is such, such a great clinical pearl. Yeah, because again, people would not connect that. Thank you for that. Yeah, so these are, yeah, these are big issues and they can potentially change people's lives, change the trajectory of how, you know, what they pursue and also deflate depression, anxiety and fears because the body is our friend. The body is the ally. The body is working very hard to figure things out. There's always a reason. So I just don't want people to give up and not trust their bodies and say, that's it. You know, I can't trust my body. It's what's next. That's not the way it is. So, so hopefully this is, hopefully this is going to change somebody's life. I would be just so thrilled if, if we uh, reach out to some people listening today when they say, ah, I got it. That may be me. That would be just, would make my day. Oh my gosh, me too, me too. And we have such a similar message in the sense that, you know, our body can do it, our body can heal. There are answers. I mean, that's the big thing that I talk about on the show all the time. Like the answers are out there and there's hope. It's just a matter of finding the right thing. And for most people, they just haven't found that thing or that combination of 10 things or whatever it may be. So Dr. Takasha, you mentioned your uh, 10-week masterclass program. And I know you're running another one. When does that start? Ooh, we're 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 launching it the the day one of this program will start february the third and on january 27th i will run three live webinars one in the morning one after lunch and one in the evening <laughs> so you're gonna be a busy lady hopefully i won't lose my my voice yes yeah, so if anybody wants to learn more about you know, the myths and pitfalls and, and, and why things are not happening and how to look at the virus. And, and, and the webinar is very empowering. It 
really will open your eyes to possibilities and and prove to you that recovery is possible. It really is possible, and that's not something that your doctor will tell you. But it is happening. It's you know, it's literature. It's my clinical practice. It's all verified. It's possible. And so yeah. So so we're gonna have another group of EBD heroes. That's what we call them. That's wonderful. And for everyone listening, I'm going to post the link to that. If anyone's interested, it's going to be in the show notes. I'll tell you much more about that. Dr. Kasha, I am so happy to have you on again. Thank you so much for all this information. Uh, so many clinical pearls here. I think it's going to help a lot of people. And you know, you've also taught me so much over the last year and a half since I've gotten to know you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So appreciate you being here. I'm just honored and I'm just so excited that you give me more platform to share and information and and share the hope just like you are and spread the word. Uh, and we, with your help, we can reach so many more people and transform their lives. So I'm very, very grateful to be here. I will tell you more about Emily's results in just a second. But first, if you want to contact Dr. Kasha Kynes or find out more about her EBV program, I have all of this information in the show notes. Just go to my website, healthmysterysolved.com. It will all be under episode 43. In Emily's case, her VCA IgM was negative, which made her doctor think the infection is not current, but she had an elevated early antigen, a marker that is extremely important and does show initial reactivation, and her doctor completely missed it. She didn't feel terrible, but was having some fatigue, as well as recent digestive issues when the test was performed, and of course she had a history of autoimmunity. It all started to make sense. She was sensitive, so we opted for the protocol that included the amino acids and antioxidants, which Dr. Kasha talks about, lysine and acetylcysteine, selenium, zinc, to see how she feels. She really, really wanted to try monolaurin, though, because she read that it was so wonderful for viruses, which it is. However, when she tried it, she got a lot of die-off symptoms, and we decided to stop it and stay with the original protocol. Her digestive issues subsided in about three weeks, and her energy started to slowly come back over the next six weeks. We retested the markers 12 weeks later, and her early antigen was back to negative. What was interesting and really exciting was that her VCA IgG went down from 400 to 350, which meant we were definitely moving in the right direction. And the other really cool thing was that her autoimmune antibodies went down by 57 points. They were still not at zero, but 57 was a huge step forward. She was thrilled with her progress and will continue with a maintenance protocol and a self-care protocol, as well as testing all of the EBV markers annually, or if she starts to feel off, just to make sure that she stays on top of it. If Emily sounds like someone you know, or you know someone that can benefit from learning more about EBV, please share this episode with them. And make sure you subscribe to the show because the next health mystery I uncover could be one you or someone you love is dealing with right now. As always, please don't give up. The answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening and see you next week on Health Mystery Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.